the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You're familiar with that little sleepy section just about halfway between Los Angeles and San Diego called San Clemente. I think of it uh, just nearby a beautiful historic Dana Point. There you have some of California's... uh, Beautiful, beautiful, white, sun-kissed beaches. Of course, the famous San Clemente Pier. And who could forget the retirement destination of Richard Nixon when he left office in 1973. And uh, kind of the image of him going along the beach wearing uh, beach shorts and his uh, metal detector looking for, you know, buried treasure along the San Clemente coastline. Kind of a sleepy town, but who would imagine that out of those settings would come a movement to help call worldwide attention to what's going on in modern-day slavery. And when you hear that, you say, oh, Craig, poor Craig. Here, as we've just recently marked President's birthday, Lincoln and Washington here in February, we ought to be thinking of the fact that Lincoln helped abolish slavery back in the 1860s. Well, there were a lot of important strides toward the abolishment of slavery in America at that time. But truth be told, truth be told, that action 150-plus years ago did nothing to abolish slavery permanently. It still exists in many pockets here in America. It still exists to tremendous and shockingly degrees all around the world, as my next guest found out. And it led her to get involved in encouraging women everywhere to stand up and to essentially be a voice for those that have no voice. Kimberly McOwen Yem joins us today. She has co-authored a new book called Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And Kim, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I now, when it. I say the, the end of slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation signed into law by President Lincoln back in the 1860s, that, that ended slavery of sorts and to a degree in fashion. But the reality is, in 2013, not only does slavery still exist, but in fact it's flourishing in many parts of the world. Yes, that is correct. And I, four years ago, I would have thought, I, as far as I knew, slavery was abolished. My understanding of slavery uh, was about the same level as my eight-year-old daughter at that time, and I thought it ended with the Emancipation Proclamation and found myself stunned to learn that there is an estimated number of over 27 million slaves in our world today and that 80% of those are women and children. We've seen focus in recent times on the issue of human trafficking, and particularly 
slavery as it relates to sex trades. We know certainly that there's so-called uh, sex tourism into places like Thailand and, and whatnot. But I think a lot of folks are, are completely ignorant of the fact that not only does it take place in third world countries, but a lot of that slavery is exported to the first world, meaning even America. Yes, and it's not always um, with uh, foreign women or girls or um, even men, but it's also um, with our with American children and women and men. And so we oftentimes think that it's over there, and it's a problem not of our own. And what we're seeing um, is that it is. It is a problem here as well. And it is affecting even um, our suburb communities that we oftentimes take for granted are safe places. And so, yes, you're absolutely correct. Tell me a bit about how this first kind of came on your radar screen. You're you're busy. You're raising a family. You're there yeah. in this generally beautiful little, uh, uh, very um, idyllic uh, community called San Clemente. How all of a sudden does the topic of slavery and human trafficking get on your radar screen? That's a good question because it sure wasn't until uh, uh, a friend of ours that we were that I was just doing a little bit of work with. I had just kind of gone um, back to work part time. Was working for my dad, and he invited us to see a film. It the 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 documentary Call and Response was just releasing, and he was involved in some of the marketing for the film and invited us to see the film. And so we went more as supportive friends, uh, kind of new colleagues, and I completely underestimated what I was about to learn and the impact that it would have on me. Uh, It definitely caught me off guard. I kind of knew the subject was about human trafficking, but I don't think I really understood what human trafficking was. At the time, four years ago, I kind of associated with smuggling and um, just thought this would be just another interesting film. I had no idea the impact that it would have. And that's kind of how I first kind of woke up to uh, what was going around around me. When we begin to consider the breadth and depth of the impact of this, many car, uh, parts of the world uh, where there are people being taken advantage of, people that are being lured into this, and I suppose a lot of the reasons are the same today as it was a century or two centuries ago, and that is a lot of it has to do with with power and money. We're going to explore that aspect of this equation. Also talk about some of the unlikely trades and places where you find modern-day slavery taking place. And I think as much as Kimberly was shocked to discover that this was going on at all, let alone the breadth and depth of it, I am pretty much persuaded you might be too. If you've just joined the conversation, it's a bit of a delicate one to be sure, and there might be a an opportunity here if you have young ones with an earshot of the radio to maybe busy them elsewhere. Uh, we're dealing with one of those topics that we don't necessarily want to hear about but need to hear about as we uh, pull back the blinds, so to speak, and let in the light of day on the topic of modern-day slavery. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Kimberly McOwen-Yim as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right, we're back to our conversation today with Kimberly McOwen Yim. A look at the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern Day Slavery. And I had no doubt, uh, Kimberly, there are some eavesdropping on this conversation right now that would say, well, now, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're talking about a handful. I mean, certainly we're, we're compassionate about all of this, but we must be talking about slavery that's limited to the third world. It might occasionally be exported into uh, the West, but for the most part, a lot of this is concentrated in parts of the world we never see and know nothing about. Yeah, I I can see why that would be kind of the general uh, first assumption, but when you scratch the surface, it's happening um, all around us. And uh, actually, in your neck of the woods of Northern California, there's actually a, probably a really strong presence of anti-trafficking coalitions that's going on. Actually, the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition is just around the corner from you guys, and um, there's a lot of different um, organizations doing amazing stuff in your area, both in your local area as well as um, addressing needs globally. But yeah, we people on the front lines of anti-trafficking fight um, have been seeing forms of slavery from uh, massage parlors to nail salons to agricultural work to domestic domestic slaves um, through uh, uh, nannies and cleaning services um, construction i mean there's it's there's been documented cases of trafficking in all those uh, regions of all those different different um, uh, different groupings here in the United States, let alone some of the um, big kind of global issues that are happening as well and some of those same things. So um, commercial sexual exploitation is a, a huge problem and concern, and this is happening in everyday towns. And this is happening, I think we need to be clear about this, as, as much as we typically think of this either in the historical context of, 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 of chattel or, or possessive type slavery, but there's a number of different categories, whether we're talking about forced labor, child labor, uh, debt bondage, whatever the case might be, and then it gets played out not just into the cases of sex trafficking that usually capture the headline news, but this is this is feeding into a lot of everyday industry. I mean, let's face it, this is more than just, well, let me go back to it. This is probably the same issue that's driving this today as what drove it 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that's driven this topic since the beginning of mankind, and that is power and money. Yeah. And and, yeah, the, the bottom line profitability of it is what's driving it. Yeah, the economy of it. The difference is, though, that back when it was legal and, you know, a smart business guy would have a variety of, you know, have many slaves, and they would be an investment. They would spend kind of the equivalent of $40,000 in today's economy. It would be an investment for uh, their business. Now, it's not translating. The value of a human being, a human life, has significantly decreased, and a slave can be purchased on average between $90 and $120. So that the people are becoming more of a commodity. Human beings are being bought and sold in that commodity level price range. They're not no longer seemed as an investment, but just a way to kind of get ahead 
but not um, a real investment. So that's why they're um, disposable. I mean, Kevin Bales, in his book, wrote Disposable People. He talks about how he specifically highlights that point um, in his book. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the unfortunate part, but I think it's, uh, it's an important piece to kind of recognize that um, people are discarded. So uh, a, a woman who is bought and sold on uh, Backpage, on adult services section on Backpage, um, she is bought and sold commercially, and say she gets uh, a disease or an illness or becomes too difficult, she could be put out on the street, she can be disposed of, and those are going to be another young girl or young woman that's going to cycle back in. When we consider the fact that, for example, in the last several years, just along the U.S.-Mexico border, there have been six, 7,000 people that have lost their lives as part of the, the drug cartel violence, you begin to get the impression and clear understanding that life is cheap, life is worthless, and yeah. many of these people are being treated simply like commodities to be bought and sold and traded, used and then thrown out when they're no longer of any value. And the sad irony is your book really reveals this goes well beyond some of the more obvious aspects of, of quote-unquote, modern-day slavery in the sex trades. Uh, it, it touches every aspect of, of life, doesn't it? Yeah. I uh, When I learned that... Um what was going on, part of the conflict, now uh, what's going on in the Congo is a complex issue, but part of what's going on is the fight over these um, mines where minerals are being mined, and those minerals end up in our cell phones, in our computers, in our laptops, in our MP3 players. And when I saw, so our economy is very complex, and so it's adding this to complexities that are going, rather than just certain tribal wars for certain lands, it's because these minerals are so precious that ends up in my phone. So inadvertently, I'm part of the problem. And so when I began to see that the, what, what I do with my time, what I'm doing with my resources, the, the things that I buy, those are not neutral. There is, they have a more global impact than I realize. Just because I don't acknowledge it or I did not understand it doesn't mean that I'm not a part of it. And so when I began to see that, I felt a great responsibility to understand it, but then to see, to do the things that I can do that are within my power to make a difference. Now, I can't, Congo is a complex, I cannot go over there and create peace. There are some many amazing um, leaders in that country that are working on that, the local church and different NGOs and different uh, global leaders are involved in that. But what I can do that I found out is that I can begin to ask my electronic companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chain? What are you doing to help remedy this? The ordinary person has tremendous power when they start asking those questions, asking for slave-free products. And there's platforms that are already existing so that the average consumer can go online and can begin to ask those questions. There's platforms such as Slavery Footprint, and Slavery Footprint is in your neck of the woods in Northern California, their local their headquarters are, and that's a great platform to sign up on and start asking those questions, asking your companies, what are you doing to monitor your supply chains? And that, the, these are the kinds of things that I began to see. There's tools, there's platforms, there's people that are creating these accessible things. 
I just need to use them. And this is the part that I can do. This reaches into almost every aspect of life, uh, both in the third and the first world. Uh, We see evidence of human slavery taking place not just again in the sex trade, which is where it tends to capture a lot of the headline stories, but the agricultural business. You mentioned about mining and manufacturing. We even see it in retail and domestics, which, uh, you know, a a lot of folks, I think, are not aware of the fact that, for example, there are people that get smuggled into countries by coyotes that pay tens of thousands of dollars or obligate themselves to pay tens of thousands of dollars in order to be pulled out of horrific circumstances in a third world nation into, say, a country like the United States. And then once they arrive here, they're not cut loose to fend for themselves. They suddenly find now that they have an obligation to a coyote of ten grand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars And now they're stuck working for years in a domestic trade or maybe even working in a retail business. We see it going on in the flower industry, in aspects of manufacturing, agriculture. I mean, it, the list of places where this reaches its ugly tentacles into Kimberly is shocking. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm, I appreciate your, your, the, the knowledge that you do have, because it's amazing to me how many, there's very, you're very fortunate. I'm lucky to be on the show when you know um, as much as you do, because that is absolutely correct. I mean, I think there, I thought that there are people that came to the country legally or illegally, um, and, you know, you have, might have one thought about immigration, but once you're here, to be additionally exploited because you wanted a better life for your family is is a shame it's horrible i mean i i think that to risk your life and spend even if you're spending money to get here and then once you're here you're additionally exploited because what what your human trafficking is is an additional exploitation on the most vulnerable in our world. Well, say for example, we see people that are working in the garment industry. Uh, a lot of this goes on, most notably in places like New York City, where they're yeah. bringing in seamstresses to work from countries like uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, China. They're smuggled in from overseas, oftentimes in very deplorable, inhumane circumstances. A lot of the big blue shipping containers that you see out at the port of Oakland, a fair number yeah. of them have humans that are hidden in there that have been given paltry amounts of water and and uh, and food to last 8, 10, 12-day trip across the ocean uh, into, uh, into the port. And then they get pulled into, smuggled into the garment district, and they're told you're going to have to work for X number of years in order to yeah. pay off the cost of your trip. And by the way, if you try to escape or don't do a, a good job, uh, we have contacts, and they too, back in the home country, and they say, right. if you don't do what we want you to do, uh, we're going to kill your parents, or maybe you have a child at home. Sometimes there's splitting up, where maybe a husband comes to get away and, and be able to hopefully send money back home. And so now, now they are threatening the lives of your loved ones back home, and you're right. well, so well beyond the reach of the law, because they say, now, if you try to turn us into the police, they'll just deport you. Right, right. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, the question, what do we do? Right? I mean, what, what can we do? Let, let's save that point because I, I don't want to interrupt you. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back and address that very important question. It comes down to, I guess, two questions we're going to have Kimberly address for us. Number one, why should it matter to us, particularly as Christians? All right. I'm... I'm heart sick to hear that women and children are being exploited in sex trade 
agriculture business, mining, manufacturing, domestic, retail, all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, why does this really matter to me? And then, if we do conclude that it should matter, what do we do about it? We'll come back to that part of the equation, our conversation with Kimberly McOwen Yim. The book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Kimberly McGowan Yim, the book, Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. By the way, let me mention, if you've ever run into a case where you suspect that might be going on, there is a national slavery action hotline that you can call. It's 888-373-7888. That's 888-373-7888. Kim, answer this for me. Some folks eavesdropping on our conversation today might have an understanding that, yes, this is going on and it's pretty pathetic and awful and horrible, but how does this affect me directly? How does it affect you directly? I think think we we kind of touched on a few of those things uh, through our phones, through our communities, through um, just we see it going around us. We don't necessarily see it overtly, but it's happening just under our noses. We might be having um, dinner at a restaurant where the people that are serving us um, are slaves, are enslaved, and cannot leave. I could be wearing a shirt right now that's made in another country, or for that matter, made in the New York City garment district that was made with slave labor. Yeah. And as you mentioned um, before the break, you know, as, as... as Christians, why should it matter to us? I mean, that is a, that is a great question. And um, I think um, in to answering, to looking at that, to know, I've come to learn that we, we kind of all, um, as followers of Christ, see that to know God is to know love, right? We say God is love. But I think in the same vein, to know God is to know justice. I mean, he, what I have learned of the last four years is all through Scripture, God calls us, beckons us through indiv- through direct quotes, through His prophets. I mean, you name it, all through Scripture, it talks about caring for the oppressed, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for the oppressed. Well, and the amazing uh, picture we have, too, I mean, we think about the very observation, what did Christ come to do? In Scripture, we learn He came to set the captives free. He came to bring freedom to those that were enslaved. And the imagery that's used there is not by accident. It was imagery that the writers at the time knew the audience, the readers would immediately relate to because they saw pictures of the impact and destruction of slavery all around them. And so the idea of somebody that is that deep in bondage and has such utter hopelessness being a slave, being given sudden release or freedom was such a powerful image that it was even used for us to understand what it meant for Christ to die on the cross, that we might be forgiven and released from the bondage 
of the slavery of our sin. Talk about powerful images that ought to immediately sort of kind of bring this message to the forefront for every Christian who understands what it is to be forgiven. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do we do about all this? How do we... you, You have a chapter in the book you bring about a discussion concerning chocolate. And I'm a huge chocolate lover. Anybody that's seen my waistline can certainly nod their head in agreement. Um, We know that there are places in the world, particularly along the Ivory Coast in Africa, that contribute to the vast majority of the cocoa beans that are harvested for the chocolate that we all enjoy. You use that as one example. Share that with our listeners and then take a couple of moments, if you would, please, Kimberly, and just give us a big sort of 30,000-mile-high viewpoint as to what (laughs) we need to be doing to actively engage in bringing to an end the horror that is slavery. Okay, um, in, you know, just so many minutes. Um, uh, the, you mentioned that great point about chocolate, and I think that's one of the, the points that we make in the book, is that everybody, all consumers, have uh, purchasing power. They have consumer power as consumers. So and looking specifically at chocolate, uh, we can begin to redirect our spending and buy fair trade chocolate. And there are, there's divine chocolate, I believe, is in your northern, I mean, is in your neck of the woods. Divine chocolate um, is there. And, and fair trade, uh, and if there's, a, there's an, a labeling for that, um, kind of like an organic, there's actually like a, a, a sign, like an image, a black and white image on next to their products on what is fair trade certified. And it's a third-party certification that has done that due diligence to see if it's a clean supply chain. And... So buying fair trade chocolate, redirecting, and I know it's hard. I mean, I've got two small kids who love their chocolate and their candy, but we intentionally redirect our spending to buying fair trade chocolate um, and fair trade products in general. Uh, another organization that I love that's also up in your area, Trade is One, has they're going to a whole new, they're only going to be selling consumable fair trade goods. Uh, from rice to olive oil to chocolate, you, you name it, those kind of consumable things that are fair trade certified. So using your purchasing power, pausing at the point of purchase and thinking, do I need it? Is, this so, is there a reason why they're so cheap? I mean, half the time now I just kind of, I, I, is, there, is there a reason why this is so cheap? Asking those questions. And if we don't know, if it isn't fair trade, then Asking the companies directly, and that's where Slavery slavery Footprint is a great resource. Well, it's ironic because we've seen, for example, with Apple, many of the Apple products that we see coming out of communist China are being made with slave labor, or certainly in circumstances, conditions, and at at wages that we would look at from any uh, first world viewpoint and say, well, that's deplorable, that's horrific. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Apple because, um, as from what I know, and I've surely don't claim to be the expert expert. I'm just, I'm, I, I like to say I'm just a mom, but I've done a lot of reading. Um, but the um, Apple went ahead and uh, were, was very, very candid, saying, do an audit on our company. We want to know. We want to know where things are made and how things are made. We want a clean supply chain. So they were actually one of the first uh, um, what am I thinking of? The, the first computer companies that who had said, electronic companies who had said, we want a clean supply chain op- and, and open themselves up to a third-party audit. And that is a new thing. And more and more, 
hopefully with enough public pressure, more and more companies will look at that as an example. And so rather than saying, oh, no, we might, because more than likely they, they do, is to saying we want to know. Because oftentimes they don't know. They, they trust the people that they're hiring to, you know, overseas. And there's, you know, the minerals have gone through a variety of transits. And it can be tricky to find out, but not impossible. And so I think by public pressure and asking those questions, that'll put enough, um, with enough people caring about it and asking for that, will, re- will become a, a public pressure that more and more companies will begin to want to have clean supply chains. So I think we have purchasing power. Um, you mentioned, uh, I think we, we, have, we all have relationship power and influence power, right? So we have people in our lives, in our ordinary lives, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's people we go to church with, whether it's our bosses, our employees, our schools, PTA. I mean, anyone who is working with kids, who is um, working in any kind of industry, there's all kinds of people we can have conversations with about it. Education is a huge piece. The hotline number that you mentioned, perfect. I mean, paying attention to what's going around us is, I think, half of it. Because oftentimes we go on as business as usual, keep to the grind, get in our car, go to the next spot, and we don't, we're not asking the questions, we're not get, building relationships, we're picking up our clothes at the dry cleaner. Do we look at the person in the eye? How are you? When we get our nails done, are we asking for the same person and building a relationship with the person that's doing our nails? Because that is where we're going to begin to see, um, and possibly, who around us when are some red flags? Well, and at the end of the day, I think, as your, the title of your book suggests, look, this is a problem that's going on worldwide. People in the first world are benefiting from this, willingly, wittingly, or otherwise. It's not right. We need to do something aggressively to stop it. And we ought to be asking these questions, as Kimberly suggests. And then, most importantly, taking a proactive approach to doing something about it. Again, a great way to get educated. Check out slaveryfootprint.org. That's slaveryfootprint.org. And if you're interested more in this topic, a wonderful book, newly published by InterVarsity Press, Crescendo, called simply Refuse to Do Nothing, Finding Your Power to Abolish Modern-Day Slavery. And our thanks to its uh, co-author, and by the way, I also should mention the founder of the San Clemente Abolitionist Mamas. I love that title. Uh, Kimberly McOwen-Yim. Kimberly, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was several years ago that there was a caller to the program around Easter time who identified themselves as a Christian since childhood, regular churchgoer, loved the Lord, tithe regularly. But as we were talking during the Easter season about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Colin went on to say that they didn't think that it was really that big of a deal, that it didn't matter if Christ's resurrection was literal or, or a figurative one. That conversation demonstrated to me that there are those within the body of believers who identify as Christians that are, well, from weak on the fundamentals to utterly failing to understand, grasp, and embrace even what is foundational to our faith. 
the extreme ineffectiveness, perhaps, of the gospel because of either biblical illiteracy or the unwillingness to outright acknowledge that we are in conflict, that we as Christians who believe in what the Bible teaches about not just the identity of Christ, but the role that he plays on the world stage of providing that substitutionary sacrifice through and by which we might be, through faith and grace, reconciled unto the very Creator himself. Today we spend some time talking about that conflict that we seem in some cases to be avoiding as we're joined by best-selling author, senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, speaker on the broadcast Pathway to Victory, and of course uh, his latest book, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, sharing an exclusive Jesus in an inclusive world. And Dr. Robert Jeffress, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me, Craig. Let's talk about this sense of conflict. Certainly, as we look at the world stage today, uh, we are in conflict, and particularly from the position of biblical Christianity, uh, we see there are two fundamental opposing views. There is biblical Christianity on one hand and the rest of the world. Sadly, though, there are many people, and a growing number, particularly in uh, Western Christianity, that seem to rather than recognize the conflict, it's almost as if we're choosing to eliminate it. Well, that's right. And the one statistic, Craig, that was behind my writing this book was the fact that 57% of evangelical Christians say there's more than one way to God other than faith in Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that Jesus clearly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And that is just astounding that Christians are waffling and wavering on the most foundational belief of historic Christianity. And you know, the truth is, Craig, if we give up this belief, we might as well close our church doors. I mean, if there are many ways to heaven, I mean, the death of Jesus Christ was a horrendous mistake. I mean, why did he suffer not just the physical agony, but the spiritual agony on the cross of bearing the sins of the world, if indeed all roads end up to heaven anyway? And uh, I just find that so many Christians are waffling on this issue that I wrote this book in order to, first of all, ground Christians so that they can reclaim this foundational truth, but also know how to share it in a compassionate, yes, but a compelling way with other people. From your perspective and viewpoint, Dr. Jeffers, how do we reconcile this? I mean, better than 50% of evangelical Christians that do not fundamentally have a grasp on the foundation of our faith. I understand that, you know, American, we must certainly embrace our pluralism from a constitutional liberty view. I get that. But Christians can't be embracing this pluralism from a theological view. I mean, to do so at the core is an anathema. Well, it is. And look, I think what's happened here is we've allowed the world to browbeat us into believing that to tell people that Buddhism is wrong and Islam is wrong and Hinduism is wrong, that that's hateful and intolerant, and nobody wants to be uh, accused of that. But really, if Jesus is the only way to heaven, the most loving thing we can do is share that with somebody. I was on a plane not long ago, and I was seated next to a guy, and he found out I was a Christian pastor, and he said, you know, I used to be a Christian, but I gave it up. And I said, well, why did you give it up? He said, I could no longer worship a God who was so intolerant as to say there was only one way to worship him. So I said to him, just imagine this airplane were to crash. 
The cabin started filling up with smoke. The flight attendant stood at the front of the plane, waving a flashlight, saying, follow me, there's one way out of this burning airplane. Would you accuse her of being intolerant or hateful because she insisted there was only one way out? Of course not. You would thank her and you would follow her. And, and that's what we've got to do, Craig, is realize that this message is not a message of hate. It's a message of love. If we hated Muslims and, and Buddhists and Hindus, we would keep our mouths shut. But this truth that Christ is the way to heaven was meant not to keep people out of heaven, but to invite them in. Part of the issue here, too, Dr. Jeffers, perhaps a, a, a stigma that is infecting certainly American culture, if not Western culture overall, this notion that somehow it's more important to be liked than be truthful about God's Word. I mean, there is a, perhaps a bit of an inconvenience to that passage in John 14, where Christ declares that he is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. And of course, if we speak that truth in that fashion, uh, we're not always going to be necessarily the most popular person at the party. No, we're not. But again, if a fireman's trying to lead you out of a house that's on fire, do you really care, you know, <laughs> what kind of tone he uses when he says, follow me? <laughs> I mean, you want to get out. I think the bottom line, what it comes back to is, Craig, many Christians really don't believe what Jesus said. They really believe that there's more than one way to God. And I don't think they've thought through the implications of this. Look, if Jesus was wrong when he said, no man comes to the Father but by me, and really all roads do lead to heaven, he was wrong because either he was lying, he knew what he was saying was untrue, or he was mistaken, he didn't know what he was talking about, and therefore was not omniscient. Either way, if Jesus was wrong, he's not the Son of God. If he's not the Son of God, then when he died on the cross, he died for his sins, not for our sins, and that means you and I are still left in our sins. What I'm saying is Christianity, the whole faith, unravels like a cheap sweater if Jesus was wrong on this signal issue. It's almost as if we don't want to accept uh, the exclusivity of Christianity because we're afraid that perhaps someone won't believe as we do and therefore be left out, and we don't want to be mean toward people. It's almost as if we don't, we don't understand the dynamic of the fact that it's God's creation. He gets to set the rules, and, and even this notion deeper in terms of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, it seems like there's a, a fundamental disconnect there. Oh, there is. <clears throat> you know, my friend David Jeremiah did the blurb on the cover of the book, and he tells a great story I recount in the book. You know, he said one day after a Sunday sermon, a woman came up to him just irate, and she said, Dr. Jeremiah, I want you to know the God I serve, the God I serve, would not send people to hell for simply not believing in Jesus. And David surprised her by saying, you're right. The God you serve wouldn't do that, because the God you serve is an imaginary God. And that's what's happened. You know, somebody said uh, God created man in his own image, and ever since that time, man has tried to return the favor. <laughs> I mean, most of us have created the God we wish existed rather than worshiping the God who actually exists. And when you look at the God of the Bible, the real Bible, he's holy, we're not. There's a chasm between us, and Christ is not just one way. He's the only way to bridge that, cap, cap, uh, that, uh, that great divide, that chasm. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus fell down and cried out to the Heavenly Father, Father, if there is any way, any other way, let this experience pass by me. But there was no other way. That's why heaven was silent. Jesus' death on the cross was the only way to bridge that chasm between God and man. 
We would like to serve a tolerant God, but forget that we actually serve a God who is a just God. That's right. And, you know, God is just and God is loving. God's justice demands that a payment be made for our sin. God's love provides that he made the payment himself. And really, the cross of Jesus Christ is the intersection of God's justice and his love. There is this obsession that America seems to have with tolerance these days, and I want to talk a bit about that when we come back after a brief break. If you've just joined the conversation, our visit today with pastor, radio speaker, and best-selling author, Dr. Robert Jeffress. His new book, perhaps one of the most critical ones and certainly most foundational of a topic through the fundamental historical Christian faith. Not all roads lead to heaven. Dr. Robert Jeffress, our guest. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 